Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an alarming poll by CNN that should be a wake-up call for Democrats, which finds that nearly half of registered voters, 46%, say that any Republican presidential nominee would be a better choice than Biden, with 44% of voters feeling that any Democratic candidate would be a better choice than Trump, as both Biden and Trump's favorability ratings stand at 35%. Joining us is Simon Rosenberg a political strategist and a former president and founder of the New Democrat Network, a leading progressive think tank and advocacy organization. Previously, he was a writer and producer at ABC News for five years before working on the Dukakis and Clinton presidential campaigns, where he was a member of the 1992 Clinton War Room. Then we'll discuss the double standard of peaceful environmental protesters being arrested as terrorists for protesting against big oil and pipelines, while white nationalist militias armed to the teeth can storm state houses and terrorize the families of elected officials, only to be told to stand back and stand by. Joining us is the only American to be jailed in a corporate prosecution in retaliation by Chevron for winning a lawsuit against them, Stephen Donziger, a renowned lawyer, writer, and public speaker with a focus on addressing human rights abuses and corporate malfeasance. He was a key lawyer on the team that won a $9.5 billion settlement against Chevron related to its contamination of the Ecuadorian rainforest. Following the victory, he became the main target of a retaliatory campaign by Chevron and was the only person ever to be prosecuted by a corporation and was imprisoned. We will discuss his article at The Guardian, The People of Ecuador Just Made Climate Justice History. The World Can Follow. Then finally, we'll speak with Alexander Mertel, a professor of political science at Rutgers University and a specialist on Ukraine, Russia, and the USSR on nationalism, revolutions, empires, and theory. He's the author of 10 books of nonfiction, including Imperial Ends, The Decay, Collapse, and Revival of Empires, and Why Empires Reemerge, Imperial Collapse and Imperial Revival in Comparative Perspective. And he has an article at The Hill, Ukraine Will Never Be a Russian Colony Again, and we'll discuss the firing of Ukraine's defense minister and Zelensky's efforts to root out corruption. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Simon Rosenberg, a political strategist and a former president and founder of the New Democratic Network, a leading progressive think tank and advocacy organization. Previously, he was a writer and producer at ABC News for five years before working on the Dukakis and Clinton presidential campaigns, where he was a member of the 1992 Clinton War Room. Welcome to Background Briefing, Simon Rosenberg. It's good to be here as always, Ian. Well, thanks, Simon, but not good news for... Joe Biden, in terms of this latest CNN poll, where nearly half of registered voters, 46%, say that any Republican presidential nominee would be a better choice than Biden in 2024. And on the other hand, 44% of voters feel that any Democratic candidate would be a better choice than Trump. So both Trump and Biden, their ratings stand at about 35%. But there's some pretty negative polling on the economy, uh, which Biden is trying to sell a good economy, but for some reason or other, he's not breaking through. And uh, 58% of Americans say they have an unfavorable impression of Biden. And of course, three quarters of Americans say they're seriously concerned that Biden's age might negatively affect his current level of physical and mental competence. So where's the good news here? Or how can this be turned turned around? (laughs) Yeah. So this this poll is far more negative than many other polls taken 
in recent weeks. And um, but you know it, where the race is, in my view, is that first of all we're 14 months away. I think there's what I call asymmetrical engagement right now, meaning that Republican voters are engaged in politics. They have a primary going on. There are ads running all across the country. Um, and their leader is being threatened with imprisonment. And so if you're a Republican, you're woken up, you're awake right now. You're paying attention. You have opinions about the election. If you're a Democrat, there's no reason for you to be significantly engaged in the presidential conversation. And I think a lot of Democrats had a good summer and they checked out and they're not really that engaged. So that level of, of engagement can drive, make these polls a little bit more Republican than Democrat. And I won't get into all the details technically about why that is. And I think that's part of what's going on right now. I mean, there was another poll this week, morning consult, much bigger sample. They do a weekly track. They had Biden up three points, 44, 41. That, of course, hasn't gotten any press at all. And so I just don't think there's any reason for people to be nervous or worried. I mean, in just like in 2022, the thing that really mattered more than national polling was what was happening with an a- actual voting, right? And that took place, the special elections, Kansas ballot initiative. And just like in 2022, when people are going to vote, Democrats are doing unbelievably well. And we've won in Colorado Springs and Jacksonville. We've won in Wisconsin. We did really well in the Ohio ballot initiative a few weeks ago. We did well in the Pennsylvania state house race that really mattered. And so just like 2022, we're continuing when people actually vote, not answering polls, we're we're doing really well. So I, I feel good. Listen, I would much rather be us than them. I feel good about where we are. I think Joe Biden's got a clear story to tell about why he's been a good president. I don't know how you sell Donald Trump to the public a year from now. I just don't know how you do it. So just to touch on the age issue, which seems to be something that's fairly difficult to deal with since three-quarters of Americans say they're seriously concerned that Biden's age might negatively affect his current level of physical mental competence at 73%. So there was another poll done the other day that said 76% feel that Biden is too old, whereas only 46% think that Trump is too old. Yet Trump is only three years younger at 77, Biden at 80. And first of all, Trump's mental state uh, is such that he should be in, should be in a straitjacket, but his physical state or the diet of Big Macs, I don't know. Why do so few people think Trump is unhealthy when Biden seems a hell of a lot healthier than Trump? Because we haven't made that attack against him, and they've invested hundreds of millions of dollars in attacking Biden for his age and his stumbles that happens. I mean, if you watch conservative media, Anytime Joe Biden sneezes, right, it's, it's you know, the top, top story. And so, you know, they've invested a lot in, in, in degrading him in this way. And I, listen, I think there's only really one way to play this on the age thing is that I think, Ian, for those of us who are formerly young, uh, we know that with age, you may lose a step here and there, but you also gain experience and wisdom. And that wisdom and experience has allowed Joe Biden to be a really good president, and the country is better off today because of it. And I think that age is not just a negative. There's a balance sheet here. There's liabilities and assets. And so far, I think the assets have far outweighed the liabilities of his age. But we're going to have to make that case. I mean, that this is not, you know, and I think it's important for Democrats to recognize that his age is an issue. And we're going to have to engage in the, in the way, either the way I'm doing it or the way that others are doing it. But I think we have to tie it directly back to his performance, that during a time of enormous challenge, right, we've had COVID and the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the global inflation and an insurrection and mass shootings and extreme weather. You know, Joe Biden's been the steady port in a stormy sea has gotten this country through very difficult challenges over the last few years. Inflation is down. We have historically low unemployment rate. You know, Putin is stumbling. China is stumbling. You know, objectively, the country is far better off today than when he came into office. And we're going to have to make that case. And, and, but it's a case I think we can make. I mean, I, I just want to say to your listeners, everything that we need to do to win the election next year are things that we can do that are within 
you know, our political, you know, within the money we have, the campaigns that we run, the way that we do our politics, we can sell Joe Biden's accomplishments. We know from polling that people don't really know what he's done. And when they're informed, his numbers go way up, right? So we, the things that we have to do, we can do. The things they have to do, selling Donald Trump, right, who will, you know, who is not the same guy as he was in 2020. I mean, since 2020, he led a, a, you know, an attempt to overthrow an American election and end American democracy. His party ended Roe and and has moved, uh, you know, pushed abortion extremism all across the country. Those two big things are now critical to the Republican brand in a way they weren't in 2020. And I think if those two things together are going to be like anchors around whoever the Republican nominee's feet are, dragging them down and making it more likely that we win. So as somebody who's been doing this a long time, I'm okay with where we are right now. I'm comfortable with where we are. We have work to do, but the work that we need to do, we can do. We also just keep winning elections. We've been winning elections all year long. They've been losing elections all year long. I feel good. I think that I, what I can't see as a strategist, I don't know how to go sell Donald Trump and win the election next year. I don't understand how they get that done. That's why I think we're going to have a good year next year. But in terms of the economy, and of course you worked in the war room with James Carville, who came up with the famous phrase, it's the economy, stupid. Yeah, he did. The, the fact that the CNN poll says 58% of Americans say that Biden's policies have made economic conditions in the U.S. worse, and that they're 70% say that things in the country are going badly and that 51% say that government should be doing more to solve the nation's problems. That's kind of mind-boggling because at least Biden is governing and trying to govern, whereas the Republicans are just throwing spaghetti at the wall with culture wars and woke anti-wokeness, and they're about to shut down the government, which is, will be catastrophic. Yeah. I mean... Maybe that might change the needle a little bit. The government shutdown. Yeah, I mean, be... I mean, I think I think spaghetti was a kind term, um, and and I appreciate that. Um, no, look, we we are we have work to do, right? Um, we're not where we want to be, but we're not that far away from where we need to be. I mean, we won the election in 2022 with Joe Biden's approval rating of 42 percent. Um, you know, and his economic numbers in a terrible place. And the reason why is there's something much more powerful in our in our politics today than uh, even the economy and even Joe Biden's approval rating, which is the fear of MAGA and Trump and the extremism of the Republican Party. That's been the issue that's driven the last three elections. It's going to drive the next one, too. It is actually the most important issue in our politics. I believe that, right? Because, I mean, what they're threatening, Donald Trump now is going to be running on a, on a clear platform that I tried really hard to end American democracy in 2021 and I failed, but I'm going to do it this time. And if we can't win that election, then we don't deserve to be in charge in 2025, in my view. I mean, they are not going to be able to run away from the fact that Donald Trump led an effort to overturn an election, install a fascist dictator and end American democracy. And, you know, it's the most serious threat to our democracy in the history of the country. We, we should be able to win an election with that guy, that guy who led that at the top of the ticket. And so I'm confident that we have the tools to win next year, but we have work to do. And we also have to acknowledge that perhaps the most salient part of Biden's age right now is that it's making him difficult to connect with voters. And and that's a real issue, you know, and I, and I think and it's why and I don't think we can look away from this. I mean, it's part of what you're asking is, why don't people know more about what he's done? Why don't they understand how much better things are? Well, you know, we're going to we need to either do that through the administration and through the constant daily repetition of things amplified by all of us making our case. Right. But it's also going to be when the campaign turns on and a billion dollars of television ads and, and digital ads come out telling the story. I'm very encouraged by the early media coming from the Biden campaign. I think it's really competent. It's really strong. It's emotional. It's it's frankly better than I thought it was going to be. And I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing. They just dropped a new ad today about him going and standing with Zelensky in Ukraine. It's a very powerful ad. And so, you know, look, Ian, I, I just, my basic message to you, we've known each other a long time, is that um, you know, I think things are fine. 
you know, like we shouldn't be panicking. We know that from 2022 that these national polls had a hard time capturing the election and did a very bad job, frankly, at capturing what happened in the election. They underestimated Democratic intensity. And I would argue they're doing it again now. I mean, if you look at objective voting and not polling, we are winning every election that's happened this year that matters, and they're not. And, and we're taking away stuff from them. We took away a Republican city in Jacksonville. We took away a Republican city in Colorado. We took away the Wisconsin Supreme Court race. These aren't incumbent. We're, we're taking stuff away from them. We're growing. We're getting bigger. We're taking political and demographic real estate away from them. That's what we should be focusing on. That, to me, is the most important political data that's in front of us this year. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, the CNN poll says that 82% majority Democrats would prefer to see someone different uh, running on the Democratic <laughs> side, but they don't have anybody specific in mind. Uh, and then the other statistic that caught my attention is that Nikki Haley is the only GOP candidate who has a lead over Biden, 49% to 43 in a hypothetical matchup. So... Surely the message to the Democrats, and I'm talking to you here from West Los Angeles, which is the ATM <laughs> of the Democratic Party, and everybody yeah. out here is like uh, casting a movie. You know, they want yeah. uh, they want you know the guy at the top of the ticket is Matt. Square, square job, yeah. Yeah. So job. Yeah. so when are they going to get over that? When are Democrats going to stop looking around for an alternative to Biden yeah. and throw their weight behind him? My, my view is that it would be wise for the Biden campaign to turn the campaign on and to start giving people stuff to do. And, and I think once that begins, then things will settle down. I think that it's very easy now, right now, to sort of be not focused because, you know, there isn't a Republican nominee yet. It's still very early in the process, you know. Um, and, and I think that once the Biden campaign, you know, because we're not having we're not having a campaign. Right. We're not having debates. We're not having. So there's nothing connecting Democrats to politics right now. And I think the longer that goes on, the more corrosive it will be for Biden. And so my advice to the campaign is they need to turn the campaign on. They need to start running ads and spending much more money and being much more aggressive and, and giving volunteers things to do, calls to make, doors to go knock on. Like they got to turn the campaign on. And you may say, Simon, it's 14 months. It's too far. I, but I think that that's the way our politics is now. People are ready to go. We've got people, Democrats all over the country ready to go to work for Joe Biden. They're ready to go to save their democracy. He needs to give them something to do. And and I think once that happens, I think this a lot of this agita and nervousness. I mean, there's listen, if Joe Biden isn't talking to you about the election and isn't asking you to go fight, right, then you have reason to doubt whether he's actually fighting. <laughs> I mean, there's it, this is a, a sort of a, on some level, it's kind of a simple thing, which is that until the campaign really turns on, until it really feels, and it may be that this isn't until February or March, right? I don't know. I think it would be wise, though, for Team Biden to turn the campaign on and start asking for people to do stuff to to start, you know, going to battle against Trump. And I think the longer they wait, the more that people may wander off and do other things, get involved in House races, Senate races, governor's races, and it'll be harder for them to corral the volunteers that they need to get the work done next year. So that's my advice, Ian, um, for whatever it's worth, my two cents. And uh, But I, I think, listen, I, I, I think the, the bottom line, if I can summarize the whole thing, we have a simple argument to make, which is that Joe Biden's been a good president, the country's better off. What's their argument? that Donald Trump's going to end this time. He's really going to end American democracy. I don't know. I mean, I'll take our argument over there as any day of the week. Well, Simon Rosenberg, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Simon Rosenberg, who's a political strategist and the former president and founder of the New Democrat Network, a leading progressive think tank and advocacy organization. Previously, he was a writer and producer at ABC News for five years before working on the Dukakis and Clinton presidential campaigns, where he was a member of the 1992 Clinton War Room. 
We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing the double standard of peaceful environmental protesters being arrested as terrorists for protesting against big oil and pipelines while white nationalist militias armed to the teeth can storm state houses and terrorize the families of elected officials only to be told to stand back and stand by. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Donziger, who is a renowned lawyer, writer, and public speaker with a focus on addressing human rights abuses and corporate malfeasance. He was a key lawyer on the team that won a $9.5 billion settlement against Chevron related to its contamination of the Ecuadorian rainforest. Following the victory, he became the main target of a retaliatory campaign by Chevron and was the only person ever to be prosecuted by a corporation and was subsequently imprisoned. He has an article at The Guardian, The People of Ecuador Just Made Climate Justice History. The world can follow. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Donziger. Thank you, Ian. It's it's an honor to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Stephen. And I'd like to obviously talk to you about your Guardian piece on the people of Ecuador making climate justice history. But let's, for the benefit of the audience, just go through what happened to you vis-a-vis Chevron and why you became the only person to ever be put in jail by a corporation in the United States. You originally were acting on behalf of the indigenous Ecuadorian people in the Yasuni National Park area where Texaco had drilled for oil and had spilled what many times more oil into the rainforest than the Deepwater Horizon blowout in the Gulf. Uh, Chevron subsequently bought Texaco. You sued Chevron, took them to court and federal court in New York, and the judge decided that the venue should be changed to Ecuador with the proviso that whatever the settlement happened in Ecuador, Chevron would have to abide by it. And they thought that they would get a better deal in Ecuador because it depends so much on the oil industry. But lo and behold, there was this $9.5 billion ruling against them in Ecuador. And then Chevron retaliated by taking you to court in New York and using evidence from a Ecuadorian judge on on Chevron's payroll, who subsequently recanted his testimony to Vice News, but nevertheless, they brought this case against you. But the uh, U.S. attorneys in the Southern District of New York refused to take up the case and prosecute you. So the judge then assigned a private law firm as prosecutors, and this law firm happened to work for Chevron, and they put you under house arrest and subsequently in jail. So is that an adequate description of... Uh... That's, a, that's an impressive summary of a years and years of, of attacks on me, yes. I'll say, though, that just to be clear, I, for 28 years, have advocated on behalf of Amazon communities in the northern part of Ecuador's Amazon, which is different than the Yasuni, which is in the southern part, although I'm involved in that issue. So I just wanted to clarify that. And and but I think the important point that you make is that I'm the only person in U.S. history ever to be prosecuted directly by a corporation and detained by a corporation. And, you know, the way that went down to, to make its very long story as short as possible is I helped the communities in Ecuador win a roughly a 10 billion dollar pollution judgment against Chevron in the courts of Ecuador, where Chevron had accepted jurisdiction where they wanted the trial to be held. Once we won the judgment, they refused to pay. And then they sued me back in the United States, claiming that I committed fraud to procure the judgment, which is completely false. The judgment was affirmed by Ecuador Supreme Court and Ecuador's constitutional court. And their evidence, as you point out, was a, a, a Ecuadorian man to whom they paid over $2 million and coached for 53 days before he testified against me in a U.S. court. 
in a, a civil racketeering case. Um, and the judge in that case, Lou Kaplan, his, his name might ring familiar because he's overseeing the case against Trump now by brought by Gene Carroll, the civil um, sexual assault and defamation case. In any event, Judge Kaplan, who had investments in Chevron, um, denied me a jury and basically ran a show trial where he let this paid Chevron witness, you know, testify falsely against me. The witness later recanted. Nevertheless, Kaplan issued a judgment against me. Um, they had meantime, they had dropped all the money damages claims uh, to avoid a jury, because in the U.S., under the Seventh Amendment to the Constitution, you get a jury if you're sued for money. So they didn't want a jury. So they dropped all the money damages claims on the eve of trial. And the judge found, based on this paid witness, false testimony that I bribed a judge in Ecuador. Um, and that contradicts the decisions of eight different appellate courts in Ecuador and Canada. Subsequent to that, we kept litigating against Chevron in Canada and other countries trying to collect their assets on behalf of the Amazon communities. And that's when Judge Kaplan charging with criminal contempt of court, if you can believe this, for appealing one of his orders that I turn over my computer and confidential case file to Chevron's lawyers. And that has never, there's never been such an order issued by a judge in the United States during an act of civil litigation. Like lawyers don't give their case file to their opposition counsel. So when I appealed that, Kaplan charged me with a crime. And then he, as you point out, appointed a private Chevron law firm to prosecute me in the name of the U.S. government after the regular federal prosecutor who heads the Southern District of New York refused to take the case, concluding that it was baseless. And then on the basis of this private prosecution, I was detained. I'm the only lawyer in U.S. history and charged with a contempt charge. And again, I think the charge was unfounded, but even if it were true, lawyers don't get locked up in jail when they're charged with contempt of court. You know, there's usually a fine or some some sort of punishment. There's never been a lawyer who's ever been held pre-trial um, on a misdemeanor contempt case in U.S. history, but I was, and I was held for over two years, which, by the way, is four times longer than the maximum sentence I could have possibly received had I been convicted. Um, and ultimately, their goal was, I think their goal, it was really an intimidation play by Chevron and the judge to silence me and to force me off the case so Chevron could essentially cheat the system and not pay the people of Ecuador that it had poisoned over decades of oil drilling down in the Amazon. Um, that ended up playing out over 993 days. I was detained. I was finally released on April 25th of last year, and I've been, quote unquote, free ever since. I say, quote unquote, because I still don't have my passport and won't let me leave the country. They won't let me go to Ecuador to visit my clients. They won't let me go to Canada and other countries where lawyers are looking to enforce the judgment against their assets. They've essentially denied me my human rights and my political rights is, in my opinion, is guaranteed by the Constitution and international law to be an advocate, you know, to make a living, to to exercise my free speech rights. Um, and on top of that, they, they've tried to hamstring, they've hamstrung me in other ways, including taking all my bank accounts. But having said that, I've been through a lot and I'm really happy now to be able to continue to be advocating on behalf of my clients down in Ecuador, um, even if it is from the United States and even if it is by speaking to people like you. So I'm really happy to be here to tell my story. Well, uh, it's amazing uh, to hear it, and, and I'm sure the audience feels the same way. I mean, we know from the, what was in the two centuries ago, the Santa Clara County versus uh, Santa Fe Railroad decision that made corporations persons in law under the 14th Amendment, giving corporations the same protection that freed slaves were getting. This is an amazing situation where a corporation has managed to jail somebody and it's it's so much worse than the idea that they could call themselves persons in law. I'm absolutely astounded that this happened. And I think you've appealed. Didn't the appeal go to the Supreme Court? And uh... yes. Yeah, so, yes. Thank you for saying that. I mean, what happened is ultimately I, I got a thank God, a really good legal team. Ironically, uh, lawyers from all parts of you know our political world, including some Federalist Society conservative lawyers who were, you know, really offended by this idea of a private prosecution, you know. So what ended up happening is a lot of the 
liberal side and the conservative side and even the far right side joined forces and said, this is clearly a violation of the Constitution. You know, it violates the rule of law. But having said that, Chevron's law firm is powerful. And the judge, the trial judge, Judge Kaplan, who did this, is has a lot of sway. And he they were able to convince, but it was a split decision. The first level appeal court in New York, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, affirmed this private prosecution in a 2-1 decision. But the dissent was so powerful that we took it up to the Supreme Court and literally the court agonized for weeks over whether to take this case, ultimately turned it down. But interestingly, two of the conservative justices, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, issued a stinging dissent um, saying that what happened to me was a violation of the Constitution and that my entire misdemeanor contempt conviction and prison sentence and detention should be nullified. Um, So... You know, but, it, but it hasn't been nullified, right? It hasn't been. It hasn't been. But now we're going to international courts, um, including the Working Group on Arbitrary Detention of the United Nations, which has already ruled in my favor one time, claiming my detention or determining that my detention prior to my trial was a violation of international law. It was clearly done for retaliatory purposes. This is five jurists, international jurists, looked at this case and concluded that Judge Kaplan displayed what they called an appalling, this is the word they use, their word, appalling level of bias against me. And this, and they also use the word staggering level of bias. And so the, the world is on to this. But I think the broader issue, I mean, I think most of your audience is, is in the United States. We need to understand as U.S. you know persons that our country is not unlike a lot of other countries in the world that violate the rights of people who stand up to the power structure. Um, You know, you see this with Navalny in Russia. You know, you see this obviously in China regularly. You know, you see it in Turkey with Erdogan. I mean, there's literally thousands of lawyers in Turkey locked up right now for opposing Erdogan. Obviously, you see in places like Saudi Arabia with um, Khashoggi. You know, what I'm trying to really convey is the United States has the same authoritarian, even fascist tendencies in this country. I'm not saying we live in an authoritarian country. I'm simply saying the seeds of that exist and they play out on a base on a more regular basis than people might realize. And, you know, if you haven't heard of what of my case or what happened to me, the New York times never wrote the first story that a U.S. human rights lawyer, by the way, I went to Harvard law school and was a classmate of Barack Obama. He was my classmate. So I, I you know, I come from a privileged background. I'm blessed to have had the education I have. So, but it's not like I was, you know, you know, a fringe person. I mean, I had an outstanding legal career, successful in my work. We won the case in Ecuador, historic case, and they locked me up. And the New York Times wouldn't even cover the story while they cover the story of lawyers all over the world, appropriately so, being locked up for political reasons. So, you know, there's been a real kind of other than some independent media outlets like the intercept the nation um there's been a real i would call you know the, the most of the mi- big media have just completely ignored what's happened to me i mean i don't know if it's because of pressure from chevron or just they don't know really how to explain how a human rights violation could be committed by a u.s judge but whatever the reason they're not covering the story and yet it is an extraordinary story where a, a corporation in effect was the law was outsourced to a corporation to railroad a lawyer that had gotten a judgment against them. You'd think that that would be something that would rattle the entire cage of the legal structure. And the fact that the two Supreme Court justices, both conservative appointees of Donald Trump, gave such a stinging rebuke to the judge for this. Uh, yeah. And you'd think that at least that would have been reported by the New York Times. No, that in itself is amazing. Let's talk a little, though, about your, your article in uh, The Guardian, though, about this win in Ecuador, where the people of Ecuador just made climate justice history and the world can follow. So just describe what happened, if you will, Stephen. Well, this is very important. Again, it's not getting enough attention. But Ecuador put the country of Ecuador, which is a country of roughly 13 million people, it's an oil producing uh, country. Obviously, I was working down there trying to clean up a lot, help the people clean up a lot of the pollution from Chevron. 
in any event, organizers put a popular referendum on the ballot in the last election, which was held August 20th, and it passed to end all oil drilling in the Yasuni National Park, which is probably the most biodiverse place on the planet. And there was one oil company operating there with a small operation, and they're now going to have to dismantle that operation and go home. What's significant about this is the first time in world history that we can, from what we can tell, that a popular referendum that is citizens have used the power of the ballot box to end fossil fuel expansion and to end at least some aspect of oil drilling. And I think the referendum process, you know, which is a key part of many state rights in the United States, is a great mechanism for people to express themselves in the climate issue and vote to end fossil fuel expansion. So my article is mostly about that and about how the people of Ecuador are really leading the world on so many of these important climate issues in the context of the law. Well, it's extraordinarily significant that an oil company actually has been forced to literally abandon the rigs and get out of town, right, and stop this oil company, Petro Ecuador, was extracting, what, 60,000 barrels a day, right? From yeah, the... I mean, but I mean, can you imagine, like, look at a U.S. state like California, where, you know, there's often referendums put on the ballot. Um, can you imagine if that, that question was put on the ballot in California? I mean, the, the, the global impact that would have, it would attract massive attention. Um, the, the, the larger point, Ian, is, is the climate crisis. Obviously, you can look around, see all these extreme weather events. The climate crisis is starting to really kill us and kill the planet in a way that it hadn't even one or two years ago. And, you know, it's very clear there's no government in the world, no major power in the world that has the fortitude at this stage to very quickly transition out of fossil fuels, including the United States, including China, including Russia, India, you know, all the major powers. So, you know, if we don't take matters into our own hands and force governments to do their job, their primary job, which is to protect the public, we're not going to see the change we need to save the planet. And that's what's so impressive about what the people of Ecuador did. I would encourage people to read my story and think about ways wherever you are and in whatever state you are in the United States or in any other country to bring a, a referendum to the next vote or the ballot in your state or in your country where people can actually express themselves on this critical issue. I mean, it could really, in my opinion, change the dynamic and force government officials and elected officials to move a lot quicker on, on these issues. So this is the opposite of drill, baby, drill, right? This is stop drilling and get out of town and, exactly and, right. and save the planet to boot. That's exactly right. But, you know, there was very little coverage of this. I mean, I, I wrote about it in The Guardian. The Guardian covered it as a news story. But, you know, the major U.S. press pretty much ignored it. Um, and, and I'll say this, a couple of points before we go real quick. One is, you know, what happened to me, this private corporate attack on me as an advocate, is happening to a lot of people in the United States, including in Atlanta now with the cop city protesters who were just charged with a civil, I mean, a criminal racketeering conspiracy. Most of them are just peaceful protesters protesting this, you know, this police training center. And I think there's been a bit of a, a, an overreach, a bit of an abuse of power in many jurisdictions in the United States to go after protesters who are effective at what they're doing, like people who might commit what I would call a peaceful act of civil disobedience. For example, trespassing to block construction of a pipeline or being charged with sometimes terrorism and felony, you know, RICO violations that could land them in prison from anywhere from 20 to 35 years. And it's a clear attempt by the fossil fuel industry and its allies and police and in government to silence people who are taking on these critical issue of confronting the fossil fuel industry so we can save the planet. And I think you can draw a through line between what happened to me, that is almost three years in detention, prosecuted by Chevron directly in the name of the U.S. government to what's happening now in Atlanta to try to, you know, silence the cop city protest movement, which is historic, to what's happening to other people who were arrested, for example, in Minnesota protesting at the Enbridge pipeline, charged with felonies and facing years and years of prison for essentially misdemeanor trespass. 
So all this is happening a lot of different places. Again, it's, in my opinion, not being covered adequately by the New York Times and some of the big media companies. But we need to really start connecting the dots and understand this is a trend happening in many states in the United States and in other countries to try to silence people protesting the fossil fuel industry. It's what happened to me. It's happening to many other people around now around the country. And we need to protect the right to protest. And that was another point of my Guardian story, Ian, is, you know, to save the planet, we need to protect the right to protest and protect our democracy. And both are under attack right now. Well, but what's extraordinary, though, Stephen, is that environmentalists engage in peaceful protests, as you just mentioned, in many places, including just in Atlanta, where 61 people have been indicted under the RICO statute, the very same statute that uh, Trump and his allies are facing for trying to steal the 2020 election in Georgia. The double standard is so glaring, though, because if you're on the right, like the Proud Boys or, you know, the Three Percenters or the Oath Keepers, you can go around armed like you're in a battle with assault rifles, mm -hmm. tactical gear. You can harass, you can enter the chamber in, in Michigan and terrorize the lawmakers. You can go after the governor and threaten to kill her. You can picket in front of the houses of state officials like secretaries of state, terrorize them and their children with assault rifles, etc., and nobody lays a glove on you. That's freedom. That's liberty. Mm -hmm. But heavens forbid that you should protest it against an oil company. You know, that's right. It's a total double standard. And, you know, what's crazy is the oil companies, the whole fossil fuel industry is lobbying state governments. I mean, there are dozens of anti-protest bills being pushed by ALEC and the oil company funded legislative lobby at the state level. And basically, the fossil fuel industry wants special treatment. They basically want laws that say you can protest, you can exercise your First Amendment rights at Walmart or you can, or your local you know, grocery store. But if you want to protest against anything related to the oil and gas industry, you are not allowed to do so. You will be charged potentially with terrorism or racketeering violations or of some sort of felony. And you risk spending years and years in prison just for exercising your right to peaceful protest. They want special treatment. It's not allowed, in my opinion, under our Constitution, as if there's some sort of favored industry. I mean, not only should they not be a favored industry, the reality is they're the industry that of all those out there is probably most threatening the survival of the planet. So why are they getting special treatment? You know, we have to really think about these things. And the final thing I want to say, if you have a second, with regard to my personal situation. You know, I'm out here speaking. I'm proud to be on your show. I'm speaking as much as I can. I'm speaking um, in New York next Tuesday. I'm in Los Angeles this Saturday, an event that I want to talk about in a second. But, you know, I refuse to be silenced. However, they might come after me again. Like this judge could charge me again and do the same thing all over again because I have refused to give my computer and confidential case file to Chevron's lawyers. So I want to point out that I do have a website, if I can. It's called freedonziger.com. And please help me. You know, thousands of people have signed up. Go to the website. Give us your email. We have a petition. And we're going to launch soon a campaign for me to get my passport back and get a pardon from President Biden um, for this completely ridiculous private prosecution that went down um you know a couple of years ago here in, here in new york so and i'm going to need support like P biden's not going to just give me a pardon he will though consider it if there's enough pressure so i just want to point out that i'm going to be launching this soon and i'm going to need as much help as possible to keep battling you know one thing i've learned is they're never going to stop me i mean i don't know what they're going to do back but like i'm going to keep going um i'm going to try to be smart about it and just keep speaking out. And, 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 you know, the more people that sort of join forces with our campaign to get Chevron to pay what it owes to the people of Ecuador and to protect the lawyers, including me, the harder it's going to be for them to come after me. So it's public support is very, very important in these types of legal campaigns that really challenge entrenched interests of power that are used to impunity, which is exactly what Chevron is in the oil industry is generally. So quickly, give us the details about Saturday. Yeah, so on Saturday, I'm speaking at a, a private home 
Dorothy Reek and her number. If you want a ticket, by the way, it's a fundraiser. And I'm going to be there with Jane, F the great Jane Fonda. The number is 310-291-1300. Again, it's 310-291-1300. Dorothy Reek, the tickets are really, I think it's almost sold out. But if you're in the LA area or in Southern California, you want to meet me and hear a little bit more about the story and help, please come. It's going to be a lot of fun. Rep uh, Representative Ted Lou is going to be there as well. And I'm I'm getting an award from the Progressive Democrats of the Santa Monica Mountains, as is Jane. But the more important point is we're going to be having a very interesting discussion about a lot of the issues I've been talking about on this show. Again, it's 310-291-1300 to get a ticket. Well, Stephen Donziger, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Donziger, a renowned lawyer, writer and public speaker with a focus on addressing human rights abuses and corporate malfeasance. He was a key lawyer on the team that won a $9.5 billion settlement against Chevron related to its contamination of the Ecuadorian rainforest. And following the victory, he became the main target of a retaliatory campaign by Chevron and was the only person ever to be prosecuted by a corporation and was imprisoned. And he has an article at The Guardian, The People of Ecuador Just Made Climate Justice History, The World Can Follow. We can take a brief station break and back discussing the firing of Ukraine's defense minister and Zelensky's efforts to root out corruption. A dollar and a half just to see him. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They pay for it, put up a parking lot. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alexander Motel, who's a professor of political science at Rutgers University and a specialist on Ukraine, Russia, and the USSR, and on nationalism, revolutions, empires, and theory. He's the author of 10 books of nonfiction, including Imperial Ends, The Decay, Collapse, and Revival of Empires, and Why Empires Reemerge, Imperial Collapse and Imperial Revival in Comparative Perspective. And he has an article at The Hill, Ukraine Will Never Be a Russian Colony Again. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alexander Motel. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks for joining us, Alexander. And you obviously follow Ukraine very closely. And the issue of corruption has always been there in the background. And it, of course, has dogged the country of Ukraine ever since its independence. It's not a mafia state, obviously, like Russia is, but it's had obviously some uh, vestiges of the Russian system that have not been rooted out. And how much do you think Zelensky firing the defense minister Reznikov is a signal of serious efforts underway to root out corruption? Because um, there have been rumors about him for the longest time. Well, that's precisely the point. You know, there have been reports and rumors about corruption within the Ministry of Defense in terms of procurements, in terms of uh, provision of supplies and things like that to the soldiers on the front. Uh, I don't personally, I don't think that Reznikov was involved, uh, but he may have been negligent. But in any case, uh, he holds, you know, he bears responsibility since he is the minister. Uh, so clearly this is an effort on the part of Zelensky, the president, to send a signal, certainly to people within the Ministry of the Defense, uh, to the elites more generally within Ukraine, but also, and not unimportantly, to the West, namely that, yes, we hear you, yes, we understand you have these concerns, yes, we know that you're providing billions of dollars of aid, no, it's not being wasted, uh, it's not being diverted into some kind of unseemly channels, and, and, you know, I'm on the ball. I'm going to take care of this. Importantly, it was a few days ago that Zelensky said that he would treat uh, corruption as the equivalent of treason. Some of his people, some people within Ukraine, so that's an exaggerated approach. Uh, but whatever one's view on that particular uh, statement, it clearly shows that he's sending very, very serious signals. And 
the replacement of Reznikov by Rustam Umerov, uh, who's a Crimean Tatar. What do you make of that? Now, that's very interesting because on, on so many different levels. On the one hand, he's not a military guy. Uh, but then again, it doesn't necessarily matter because the war isn't being fought by the Ministry of Defense. It's being fought by the general staff. And as you know, they're doing a pretty good job. Um, on the other hand, he does have, I mean, he was in charge of the state property fund, which is to say the fund that was responsible for privatization. So if anybody has had any kind of contacts with corruption, it's someone who's worked for the state property fund. The good news is, as people in Ukraine say, is that there seem to be no, there's no corruption on his part, or at least none that we know of which probably means that there isn't any at all. So he seems to be, you know, again, a, a reformer uh, with some experience in the kind of issues that he'll be dealing with within the Ministry of Defense. Um, and, of course, as a successful businessman, he knows how to run operations. I think part of his uh, attractiveness to Zelensky was the fact that he could be, that he's effectively a technocrat, a guy who knows how to run a business, presumably can do it well, and will presumably try to treat the Ministry of Defense and its various subordinate units as a business as well. But there's more, because, of course, he's a Crimean Tatar. Not only that, uh, he was actually born in Soviet Uzbekistan, in Central Asia, which is where the Crimean Tatars were exiled by Stalin. So he's experienced Soviet genocide effectively firsthand. He came back and lived in the Crimea. Uh, he served, I mean, he serves as an advisor to the Crimean Tatar Congress, it's not, it's, or National Assembly, it's known as the Medjlis, and its leaders. So clearly this is a guy who's very closely connected with the Crimea, with the Crimean opposition, the Tatar opposition to the Russians. And this is clearly and obviously a signal on the part of Zelensky that Ukraine is very serious about recapturing Crimea. Uh, I mean, it may or may not be able to do that, but it will certainly make every effort to do this as well. Finally, uh, he's got contacts with some important people. So he seems to be, apparently, he's on good terms with the Turkish president Erdogan which is important. For one thing, they speak more or less the same language. Crimean Tatar is very different from Turkish. Uh, for another, Erdogan supports the Crimean Tatar cause. And of course, as you know, Erdogan has played the role of an important middleman between Ukraine and Russia, specifically with regard to the grain deal. So it's not inconceivable that he may be more than just a minister of defense, that he may actually take part in negotiations uh, with the Russians, with the Turks, who knows? All in all, probably a very smart move on the part of Zelensky. And of course, Erdogan's son-in-law, he's the guy that has the company that's selling the uh, Turkish drones to the Ukrainian military. But what do you think is going to happen with Reznikov? There are rumors that he may become ambassador to the UK. There's also, of course, rumors that Reznikov's girlfriend in London has been taking, you know, kickbacks from arms deals. So I don't know. Do you think that any of the NATO allies were the ones that pressured Zelensky to get rid of uh, Reznikov? Well, I, I'm not sure if, again, as I suggested, I, I haven't seen any persuasive evidence to the effect that he's actually corrupt. Um, he may have been lax. He may have been negligent. I mean, Presumably he was lax and negligent, but I, I don't think he was skimming money off the top, or at least I, I'm not aware of any evidence to that effect. Uh, and my, my suspicion is he was basically the sacrificial goat. I mean, someone had to take responsibility and become the fall guy, and he was the obvious choice. Um, what's his future? I, I've also heard, I mean, I've read rather, I've read certain accounts suggesting that he might be moved to some other ministry, to some other high-ranking position. I don't think he'll be demoted and basically sent off to the Ukrainian equivalent of Siberia. Uh, he's probably going to have some kind of position of 
my guess is that he'll have a position that somehow relates to Ukraine's contacts with the West, especially with regard to military issues, because he was the guy who attended all of these sessions of the so-called Ramstein process, whereby 50 or more countries agreed to provide Ukraine with weaponry. Now, Umar Umarov will be the person to take over, but it would be it just would it would be irresponsible on Umarov's part to neglect or ignore Reznikov's contacts and Reznikov's expertise. So that's where I would place him. But I'm not sure I'd make him into an ambassador, um, but some kind of position, possibly within the Ministry of Defense. Excuse me, within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. That would give him access to the kinds of people in the West that he interacted with over the last few years. And in the other effort on Zelensky's part to clean up corruption that was widely publicized was the scandal within the recruitment offices around the country for young Ukrainian men and women uh, who are essentially being drafted into the military. Obviously, they have a manpower shortage compared to the Russians. And apparently across the board, there was a lot of corruption in terms of uh, of officials in these uh, recruitment offices around the country taking bribes from Ukraine, young Ukrainians who didn't want to serve in the military. And he fired a whole bunch of people, didn't he not? Yes, he did. Right, right across the country. Yes, he did. Absolutely. And one of the first announcements made by Umerov, as a matter of fact, he said this today, was that he is going to uh, digitalize all of these bureaucratic procedures that would have enabled either potential draftees or the heads of these recruitment offices to take bribes, give bribes, ignore procedures, and so on. Uh, Zelensky says that that's going to be one of his primary goals, uh, tasks rather, and Omeros essentially repeated the same. So it looks like they're serious about closing some of these loopholes and making it uh, easier for the Ukrainian army to draft soldiers. By the way, I mean the Ukrainian army is doing fairly well. Well, they have something like five or six significant, I believe, brigade-level units in in their reserves. So they're not yet at any kind of critical point. That said. Uh, clearly, the longer the war will drag on, if it drags on for a long time, uh, the more evident will some kind of soldier shortage be. So they need to deal with the problem as quickly as possible and as effectively as possible. Um, I think that'll put the fear of God into Barov and make him, at least with regard to that, make him more or less effective. Well, they still haven't deployed their main Western trained units, brigades with armored brigades in particular, with the modern or more modern battle tanks, leopards and the challenges and and the American Abrams tanks have yet to arrive. Now they the US has now decided to transfer depleted uranium shells as well. What's your understanding of, of this breakthrough in the South? Uh, they say they've definitely passed the first Russian line of defense, and there's some suggestions that maybe the second and third lines of defense aren't quite as robust as originally thought. So do you think they're poised for a breakthrough and uh, that these other brigades that have been held back in reserve might be uh, joining the battle? I, again, my guess, this, uh, I'm not privy to what the general staff is thinking, but from what I've been reading and from the movements of their forces and from the kinds of actions that they've engaged in, it looks to me like the priority in the next month or so is to continue to degrade Russian infrastructure, uh, energy, you know, sort of uh, gasoline depots, ammunition depots, command and control centers, and eventually get to the point where they could have under uh, where they could be able to fire artillery shells more or less at ease at a, at a critical number of railroad links and roads going from eastern Ukraine north of the Sea of Azov to the Zaporizhia and especially the Kherson and Crimea provinces. The point, in other words, is to cut off the supply lines as much as possible. 
if they can do that, and it looks like they're close to being able to do that, and at the same time, if they could disable the Kerch Bridge that connects Crimea to Russia proper, effectively, they will have surrounded uh, a significant number of Russian armed forces, basically everybody uh, in Kherson, parts of Zaporizhia, and much of Crimea. That would then enable them to essentially win without necessarily having to sacrifice huge numbers of forces. That seems to be the plan. At the same time, the reason that the Ukrainians haven't employed, deployed these major forces as well as the tanks and so on initially, uh, at least in these last few weeks, was because they tried that at the very beginning of their counteroffensive and they got creamed. Uh, the minefields, the artillery that the Russians were shooting, I mean, they followed American advice, basically, namely, go in, uh, do a kind of frontal assault with all this heavy uh, machinery and expect a bit breakthrough. But, of course, the Russian defenses were simply too strong. So what the Ukrainians did was adopt an alternative strategy, namely relying on their infantry, holding the tanks in reserve. They can't deploy their, uh, their air force to the degree that they would like to simply because it's not large enough and the West isn't providing them with the requisite air power. So what they're doing is relying on their infantry and just incrementally, you know, step by step, winning back territory. And as you said, they appear to have pierced the front first line of defense in two and possibly three places, and they appear to be approaching the second line of defense. This is a very slow process because the Russians are well dug in, and at the same time, they've put in thousands of mines. It's been calculated that a square yard of territory may have up to five mines. So you need to debine these fields, and you need to do this in a fashion that doesn't entail any limbs being uh, lost. And then at the same time, you have to coordinate these attacks on well-entrenched Russian positions. So the Ukrainians are making steady progress. It's slow, it's incremental, but they may be at the point Assume, for instance, that they might be able to, to, to embark on a breakthrough. I mean, if they can cut off the supply lines and if they can disable the Kerch Bridge, then basically they will be dealing with Russian armed forces that are significantly degraded and depleted and probably demoralized. And that okay. should make any kind of advance much easier. Right. And isolated as well. But the Ukrainian officials have been bristling under criticism coming from the West about slow progress, which is obviously annoying them because they, they don't want to lose lives. But has this firing of Reznikov anything to do with that? You said, said earlier that he might be being scapegoated. Are they responding to criticism of the slow progress in the counteroffensive? I, I don't think so. I mean, you know, possibly in some remote sense, but, the, you know, the war, the actual war is being fought and conducted and planned by the general staff, especially by the chief general, Zeluzhny. Um And he's been doing this pretty much independently of the Ministry of Defense. He coordinates uh, with Zelensky, but Zelensky has been smart enough to stay out of the actual running of the campaigns. So I, I don't think so, in other words. I, I, mm -hmm. I would be surprised if that were the case. Well, Alexander Myrtle, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Alexander Myrtle, who's a professor of political science at Rutgers University and a specialist on Ukraine, Russia, and the USSR and on nationalism, revolutions, empires, and theory. He's the author of 10 books of nonfiction, including Imperial Ends, The Decay, Collapse, and Revival of Empires, and Why Empires Reemerge, Imperial Collapse, and Imperial Revival in Comparative Perspective. And he has an article at The Hill, Ukraine Will Never Be a Russian Colony Again. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org. 
where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again with another background briefing. Bye for now. Oh,